Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show is dedicated to celebrating forgotten and also infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience here in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. Today's show was recorded at the LCB, the Literarisches Colloquium Berlin, which I find a little bit hard to say. Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie Darbyshire and Florian Dawesens are here with me too. Hey there! Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. It's our last show of the year and we thought we should celebrate with some champagne. Other fizzy drinks are also available. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, I'd like to pose a question. Which of our dead ladies would you invite to a cocktail party of immortal proportions? I would invite Afra Ben, who was the first English woman to make her living from writing, and she was writing quite bawdy uh, restoration comedies and uh, translating, and she had a fascinating life. She was a really bad spy who, I think, in, in tried to go to Belgium but didn't even make it across the border, something like that. She was, um, but a very good playwright, and she, I'm sure she'd be really great fun. Fantastic. Okay, Florian. <laughs> Uh, in that vein, I'd also invite a famous spy, um, Josephine Baker, who you might not know, worked as a spy for the French Resistance during World War II and was documented as uh, dancing, like doing performative dance in Berlin in the 1920s at a party and then just like chowing down on a lot of Wurst afterwards in the wee small hours. So I think she'd be a fine addition to our uh, immortal cocktail power party. Okay, very good. And I'm going to choose uh, Dorothy Parker, the author and wit and uh, very good person, actually, in the end. And um, she probably wouldn't be the kind of guest who helped you with the washing up, but <laughs> <laughs> actually none of these ladies might be. <laughs> I don't want guests who help me with the washing up anyway. I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Any so, um, yeah, and Florian, you have a talk for us on the life of Dorothy Parker, uh, which was recorded earlier. And she was one of the ladies who really inspired the Dead Lady Show. Is that correct? Yes, it was. And I, in the talk, I go into it um, a, a bit and I, I read some of what um, made me want to learn more about where this woman came from. But I think what it comes down to at heart was her quotability. Um, and I think all of us know a couple of um, Dorothy Parkerisms. They're certainly reblogged often enough. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah, you can find a lot of them online, and some uh, aren't actually hers, but they could be. Uh, but both of you have prepared one, so looked one up for me, and I would love it if you read it now. This is a quote from uh, Dorothy Parker's 1956 Paris Review interview, which is really fascinating to read because there's these totally po-faced questions and then she responds just super amazing witty answers including the sentence i hate almost all rich people but i think i'd be darling at it very good and uh we'll find out exactly how her finances did go a little bit in your talk Probably not well as the answer to that, as it has with a lot of the dead ladies. Um, and you've got a quote as well, Florian? Um, yes, I do. And it, it ties into this semi-unhappy end that it's sort of is built into uh, a lot of our characters. 
specifically the characters of the dead ladies that we talk about. Um, and her, the quote is, three be the things I shall never attain, envy, content, and sufficient champagne. Well, we have sufficient champagne, I hope. <clears throat> it's not even really champagne, so maybe that's not true. But um, why don't you, yeah, tell us what we're drinking, because there may be a lot of listeners who don't know anything about this stuff. Well, it's it's named after a dead lady of sorts. Right. I mean, she certainly dies a death in. Uh, so this name it's named Rotkäppchen, um, which means it means Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Yes. It's a nice, <laughs> nice thought. <laughs> Imagine her with that basket of bread and cheap sparkling wine on the way to her grandmother's house. Yeah, it's it's the drink that teenage girls. Um, drink on the subway on their way out to a club in in berlin at any rate yes. in berlin very much so and it's it's uh, an east german drink is one of the, the few products that has survived the transition to re reunify germany and uh, it's nice mm -hmm. we like it it comes in pomegranate and mango flavors i recently learned oh that's maybe not so good yeah <laughs> But yeah, the um, the connection to the East is really nice as well. It's just like what caption I personally am a fan of. Red Riding Hood, she's a little bit of a heroine, you know. It depends on the version. Sometimes she really gets it done, you know. <laughs> so Dorothy Parker, she is known for her biting wit and clever turns of phrase, but we're going to hear what are perhaps some of her lesser known contributions to society. Um, and Florian, you're in the spotlight today. As I've told people before on the show, you are Dutch. You are also an editor, a translator, and teacher. What are you working on at the moment? We've just finished the new issue of Sand, which is in stores in Berlin right now. And you can also buy a digital and actual copy online at sandjournal.com. And what will people find in this, uh, this edition of Sand? People will find some lovely uh, and powerful flash fiction, uh, a gorgeous essay about uh, the obsession that artists have for particular mountains that they keep painting over and over and over again, um, and um, a lot of beautiful poetry and art that's all um, not quite plagiarized from Cezanne, but painted over Cezanne's. That's the art. Sounds good. So let's start with a bit of Dorothy Parker with no further ado, reciting what might be her best-known poem, Resume. Resume. Razors pain you, rivers are damp, acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful, nooses give, gas smells awful. You might as well live. That sounded familiar, right, to some ears at least. Um, what you might not know is that um, Dorothy was the first person to have documented in print uh, phrases like, with bells on, as in, I'll be there with bells on, um, boy meets girl, facelift, high society, one night stand, pain in the neck, and what the hell? Um, and I'm sure some of you know her famous quips. Um, she was very famous for her witty repartee, um, and they're very popular on the internet. When she was challenged to write a, a sentence using the word horticulture, 
she snapped back, you may lead a whore to culture, but you can't make her think. Um, and in fact, Katie and I um, first got the idea for the Dead Lady Show when we were um, sitting on my couch tr uh, drinking Rotkäppchen, um, like you do in the East, and uh, reading Dorothy. Um, and so I'll, I'll read um, a couple of paragraphs from, from the very piece that we were so inspired by that night. And it's taken from a book review she wrote for The New Yorker in 1928. That's what The New Yorker looked like in 1928. And this is the review. It is with a deep, though a purely personal regret that the conductor of this department announces the visitation upon her of a nasty case of the rams. The rams, as I hope you need never find out for yourself, are much like the heebie-jeebies, except that they last longer, strike deeper, and are, in general, fancier. The illness was contracted on Thursday night at an informal gathering and I'm convinced that it may be directly traced to the fact that I got a stock of bad celery at dinner. It must have been bad celery, because you can't tell me that two or three sidecars, some champagne at dinner, and a procession of mixed Benedictines and brandies taking seven hours to pass a given point are going to leave a person in that state in which she's afraid to turn around suddenly, lest she see again a little mean man, about 18 inches tall, wearing a yellow slicker and roller skates. Besides the continued presence of the little mean man, there are such minor symptoms as loss of correct knee action, heartbreak, an inability to remain either seated or standing, and a constant sound in the ears as of far-off temple bells. These, together with a readiness to weep at any minute and a racking horror of being left alone, positively identifies the disease as the rams. Bad celery will give you the rams quicker than anything else. You want to look out for it. There's a lot of it around. This then goes on for a couple more paragraphs um, before getting to the books at hand. It's a book review, right? <laughs> so I hope you agree that Dorothy certainly lived up to this idea that she was the funniest woman in New York. But did you know that she reported from the Spanish Civil War? that she started one of the first unions in Hollywood, and that she left her estate to Martin Luther King? I'll start at the beginning. Dorothy Parker was born Dorothy Rothschild on the Jersey Shore in 1893, the night before a big storm blew the chimney off the house her family had rented for the summer. Her father was born in Selma, Alabama, to a Jewish family who'd fled Prussia after the field revolution of 1848. After his parents moved to New York, he fell for the girl next door, a goyish girl from a long line of gunsmiths, and the Rothschild settled into a life of relative wealth and comfort. Dorothy would later say their servants were so fresh from Ellis Island, they were still bleeding. Of her political awakening, she writes, I think I knew first what side I was on when I was about five years old, at which time nobody was safe from buffaloes. It was in a brownstone house in New York, and there was a blizzard, and my rich aunt, a horrible woman then and now, had come to visit. I remember going to the window and seeing the street with the men shoveling snow. Their hands were purple on their shovels, and their feet were wrapped with burlap. Uh, and my aunt, looking over my shoulder, said, now isn't it nice there's this blizzard? All these men have work. 
And I knew then that it was not nice that men could work for their lives only in desperate weather, that there was no work for them when it was fair. Despite her talent and passion for writing, Dorothy didn't take to schooling, leaving first her Catholic and then her finishing school before the age of 14. After the sudden death of her father, who was a once successful owner of a suit and cloak making sweatshop, she and her siblings were left largely penniless. Since she'd been mainly taught how to be a lady, Dorothy's only marketable skill was playing the piano at a dance school, teaching one of the sudden crazes of 1914 the tango. Um, she'd always been fond of writing silly verses, though. Her father and her seemed to correspond only in rhyme. She said, like everybody else was then, I was following in the exquisite footsteps of Edna St. Vincent Millay, unhappily in my own horrible sneakers. So she started to submit her work uh, on the sly, and um, in 1916, a switch to, to free verse and prose won Dorothy her first in tone-setting publication in Vanity Fair. I'll, I'll just read uh, one little section from this piece, Why I Haven't Married, uh, which contains the seven reasons why my mail is still being addressed to Miss. The first one of these reasons was Ralph. He was one of those sweet, unsullied natures that believes everything it sees in the papers. And no matter what I said, he would gaze into my eyes and murmur, yes. He had positively cloying ideas about women. If any girl in his vicinity lit a cigarette, Ralph's eyes behind their convex lenses assumed the expression of a wounded doze. He superfluously assisted me up and down curbs. He was always inserting needless cushions behind my back. He had acquired a remarkable muscular development merely from helping my on with my wraps and coats. I felt that life with Ralph would be a deep dream of peace, and I was just on the verge of giving him his answer and receiving his virginal kiss, when, in a flash of clairvoyance, I had a startlingly clear vision of the future. I seemed to see us, Ralph and me, settle down in an own-your-own bungalow in a 20-minute suburb. I saw myself surrounded by a horde of wraps and sofa pillows, I saw myself as a member of the society opposed to women's suffrage. So I told Ralph that I wouldn't, just as gently as possible, and he went away to sob it out on his mother's shoulder. Um, these pieces uh, led to her getting a job writing captions at Vogue. Caption writing, it's, it's the new blogging, or the old blogging, I guess. Brevity is the soul of lingerie, she wrote in October 1916. Uh, she also became the resident guinea pig for what at that point were still um, slightly risky cosmetic innovations like the permanent wave. And this paid her $10 a week, which is about 230 today. Eight of those $10 went to pay for her boarding house at 103rd and Broadway. And her friend Robert Benchley, who she would later work with a lot, um, called her work emblematic of the so-called elevated eyebrow school of journalism. Write about absolutely anything you want, but do it in evening clothes. <laughs> in 1917, she married a stockbroker and became Mrs. Parker, with Mr. Parker departing for World War I about five minutes later. She was soon hired by Vanity Fair, a sophisticated magazine still occasionally printing articles in French. 
um, and she would take over for P.G. Woodhouse as drama critic. This made her the youngest and only female drama critic in New York um, at a time when women were not allowed to vote. With as many as eight or 10 shows opening per week, uh, in some cases even seven shows opening on one night. Uh, there was plenty of fodder for her cruel pen, and soon her reviews became essential reading, uh, though less so for Broadway producers. Once, for instance, instead of the show, she reviewed the performance of the woman sitting next to her who was trying to find her glove <laughs> throughout that show. Um, Dorothy started to hang out at the famous Algonquin Hotel and with the likes of Harpo Marx, Edna Ferber, Irving Berlin, and this was during Prohibition, so there's no booze on this table. It's just coffee. Um, they would sometimes sneak in booze, but, uh, and they would have lots of booze uh, after hours at speakeasies and brothels where they hung out. By the early 1920s, her marriage to Mr. Parker had crumbled. Um, he'd gotten addicted to alcohol, definitely, and possibly also to morphine when he was uh, in Europe. And uh, he moved to Connecticut. She stayed in New York. Uh, Dorothy became increasingly embarrassed of her frivolous verses. She would never call it poetry, verses. Uh, she especially hated her very famous poem called News Item. Does anybody know this poem? It's one line. Men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses. Um, Though she was widely known as the funniest woman in New York, she hadn't been published anywhere outside of Vogue and Vanity Fair, where she'd been sacked for trashing too many of the advertisers' Broadway productions. And all her best jokes appeared in other people's columns. So all those people who were sitting around the table just now, they all had columns, and so they would type up all her jokes and steal them. They would, they would credit her, but that's not how you make money, is it? Um, she had had an abortion, which were legal in those days as long as you had the money and you had uh, three signed doctor statements to that effect. Um, men had failed her. She was drinking rather heavily. She tried to commit suicide twice. When asked by a bartender, what are you having? She answered, not much fun. Yet, career-wise, things were looking up very, very slowly, but very surely. Uh, in 1925, her work appeared in the very first issue in the of the very fledgling New Yorker. And by 1927, her first collection of verse, Enough Rope, was published. And it was the rarest of things, a poetry bestseller. That same year, she published uh, an arrangement in black and white, a powerful sketch set at a party in honor of an African-American singer patterned after Paul Robeson. It starts with a woman accosting the host, demanding to be introduced to the guest of honor. I'll read a few little bits from it. I'll try and do like a fancy lady accent, but I, I can't. I just can't understand people being narrow-minded. Why, I absolutely think it's a privilege to meet a man like Walter Williams. Now I do. I haven't any feeling at all. Well, my goodness, the good Lord made him just the same as he did any of us, didn't he? Surely, said her host. That's what I say, she said. Oh, I get so furious when people are narrow-minded about colored people. It's just all I can do not to say something. Of course, I do admit, when you get a bad colored man, they're simply terrible. But as I say to Burton, there are some bad white people too, aren't there? They reached the tall young Negro standing by the bookcase. The host performed introductions. The Negro bowed. How do you do, he said. Isn't it a nice party? 
the woman with the pink velvet poppies extended her hand at the length of her arm and held it so, in fine determination, for all the world to see, until the Negro took it, shook it, and gave it back to her. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Williams, she said. Well, how do you do? I've just been saying. I enjoyed your singing so awfully much. I've been to your concerts, and we have you on the phonograph and everything. Oh, I just enjoy it. She spoke with great distinction, moving her lips meticulously, as if in parlance with the deaf. Then, after her host has sort of <laughs> dragged her away and piloted her firmly into the next room, she says, why? He's awfully nice, just as nice as can be. Nice manners and everything. You know, so many colored people, you give them an inch and they walk all over you, but he doesn't try any of that. Well, he's got more sense, I suppose. He's really nice. Don't you think so? Yes, said her host. I liked him, she said. I haven't any feeling at all because he's a colored man. I felt just as natural as I would with anybody. Talk to him just as naturally in everything. But honestly, I could hardly keep a straight face. I kept thinking of Burton. Oh, wait till I tell Burton I called him Mr. Um, thus ends this story. Uh, though by now, Dorothy was occasionally having whiskey sours for breakfast. Um, she'd become a celebrity even outside of Manhattan. Why it got so bad that people started laughing even before I opened my mouth, she said. In 1929, she won the O. Henry for Big Blonde. Uh, it really, truly stunning. If you read one short story of hers, read Big Blonde. About the titular Big Blonde, I'll just read one paragraph just to get you hooked. In her 20s, after the deferred death of a hazy widowed mother, Hazel Morse had been employed as a model in a wholesale dress establishment. It was still the day of the big woman, and she was then prettily colored and erect and high-breasted. Her job was not onerous, and she met numbers of men and spent numbers of evenings with them, laughing at their jokes and telling them she loved their neckties. Men liked her, and she took it for granted that the liking of many men was a desirable thing. Popularity seemed to her to be worth all the work that had to be put into its achievement. Men liked you because you were fun, and when they liked you, they took you out, and there you were. So, and successfully, she was fun. She was a good sport. Men like a good sport. Um, Dorothy's book reviews uh, for The New Yorker, when she did get around to talking about the actual book, took just as sharp an approach. Here's one of my favorites in its entirety. André Gide's The Counterfeiters is too tremendous a thing for praise. To say of it, here is a magnificent novel, is rather like gazing into the Grand Canyon and remarking, well, 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 quite a slice. <laughs> Doubtless you have heard that this book is not pleasant. Neither, for that matter, is the Atlantic Ocean. In 1927, she began to use her newfound status to make overt political statements, protesting the executions of Sacco and Vanzetti, and she would also raise money for the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. With no talent for homemaking or bookkeeping, Dorothy herself lived from paycheck to royalty check, always made out to either cash or her liquor store. And at the start of the 1930s, Dorothy was almost 40 and hanging out in Europe with Hemingway and the Fitzgeralds, but it wasn't New York, and happiness eluded her still. A typical New Year's text, um, telegram, 
uh, to her best friend back home rang, you come right over here and explain why they're having another year. She was back stateside, uh, just in time to see 86 bread lines and one third of New York's workforce unemployed, prompting her to publish the proto Brett Easton Ellis piece from the diary of a New York lady, written from the perspective of a mindless ditz in the vein of a Melania Trump, which she subtitled During Days of Horror, Despair, and World Change. Her romantic entanglements were um, also mostly very depressing until in 1934, she married the 10 years younger, and possibly bisexual, actor Alan Campbell. They were very happy in the early days with him. Uh, they look very happy, don't they? She does. Um, him cooking for her, decorating their rooms, taking her to parties, and, and later she would eviscerate him with all kinds of horrible gay slurs without any ostensible evidence of adultery, I should add. In desperate need of money, Dorothy and her husband headed to Hollywood to pitch themselves as a writing team. Uh, she never had or got any taste for the movies, though. Her ambitions, if any, were mostly aimed at Broadway or the novel. Both would ultimately elude her, though hard-drinking, wise-cracking characters based on Parker appeared um, on Broadway stages at least three times during her lifetime alone. She and her husband worked on 15 movies between 1933 and 1938. This is the best title of all time. Mary Burns, Fugitive. And Margaret Sullivan is the best, right? Margaret Sullivan fans? Yes, there's one, very nice. Uh, she worked on Hitchcock's Saboteur. She, I keep reading that she appears like next to Hitchcock in the cameo that Hitchcock has in that movie, but I couldn't actually find her, so I didn't want to show you and make you look and then pretend like, oh no, that's her. So watch Saboteur, it's really good, but sh and she might be in it, but I, I couldn't find her. And she also wrote, or her and, and Campbell wrote, the original A Star is Born. So this is not the Judy Garland one, and it's not the Barbara Streisand one, and not the upcoming Lady Gaga one. Um, <laughs> but I'll just show you a, a very brief clip in which the heroine's grandma warns her that Hollywood, her Hollywood dreams may come at the price of heartbreak. You know, Esther, there'll always be a wilderness to conquer. Maybe Hollywood's your wilderness now. From all I hear, it sounds like it. But if you've got one drop of my blood in your veins, you won't let Mattie or any of her kind break your heart. You'll go right out there and break it yourself. That's your right. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Dorothy would be nominated for two Oscars, uh, for this one and for another one, uh, both for films about alcoholics and the people who love them. At one point, and I repeat, this was still during the Great Depression, um, Dorothy was the highest paid female writer in Hollywood, making $5,200 a week. That's about $94,000 today. All of that money disappeared into a Pennsylvania farmhouse that they bought and then uh, added electricity and a pool to. And though they tried starting a family, she was really good at knitting. Um, she was knitting blankets and booties, even appearing in this heartbreaking publicity shot that, that had the, the little caption wrote that they were awaiting the stork 
1936, uh, but a series of miscarriages and ultimately a hysterectomy ended that ambition. That same year, Dorothy co-founded both the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League um, and the Screenwriters Guild, which was the first such union for screenwriters. Uh, when the movie jobs fizzled out, she went back to Europe, hung out with Hemingway, um, and she visited Spain during the Civil War, which was to be another major political awakening for her, forever complicating her relationship with her wealthy friends, especially when back in La La Land, working for MGM, or as she dubbed it, Metro Goldwyn Mayred. Um, I'll quote here from a talk that she gave uh, that was published in the leftist newspaper, The New Masses, in 1937. I'm not a member of any political party. The only group I have ever been affiliated with is that not especially brave little band that hid its nakedness of heart and mind under the out-of-date garment of a sense of humor. I heard someone say, and so I said it too, that ridicule is the most effective weapon. I don't suppose I ever really believed it, but it was easy and comforting, and so I said it. Well, now I know. I know that there are things that never have been funny and never will be, and I know that ridicule may be a shield, but it's not a weapon. As she continues uh, this talk, uh, she sounds a bit, per a bit too earnestly optimistic, a bit too rosy-colored about the uh, actual goings-on in the Spanish Republic, but she also describes the aftermath of uh, the bombings of Valencia. After the planes had dropped their bombs, there wasn't much left of the places where so many people had been living. There was an old, old man who went up to everyone he saw and asked, please, had they seen his wife? Please, would they tell him where his wife was? There were two little girls who saw their father killed in front of them and were trying to get past the guards back to the still crumbling, crashing house to find their mother. There was a great pile of rubble, and on the top of it lay a broken doll and a dead kitten. It was a good job to get those. They were ruthless enemies to fascism. She would retain this political edge throughout the 1940s, um, writing this article for Mademoiselle in 1943. The first thing to do to win your war is to lose your amateur standing. Girls and young women are needed badly and immediately for the daily jobs that must go on if your world is to go on. Somewhere right near you, there's an empty job that must be filled, a job a man has left to go where he was told to go. He may have driven a bus, a taxi, or a trolley. He may have worked in a bank, a drugstore, or a telegraph office. If he can do what he's doing now, certainly you can do what he used to do. For God's sake, are we women or are we mice? That was the title of the article. It's good. Um, Though her husband was in the army, Parker herself was not accepted into the Women's Army Corps and not allowed to be a war correspondent either, ostensibly because she was just over 50, but more probably because she had been classified as a so-called PAF. Does anybody know what a PAF is? Any ideas? A premature anti-fascist. <laughs> she was just against them too early. She should have, I don't know. She was too early. The FBI sub suspected her of subversive behavior and the House Un-American Activities Committee made it hard for her to get work for pretty much the rest of her life, though she would write occasional monthly um, reviews for Esquire in the early 1960s, covering 208 books, celebrating Lolita, Cheever, Faulkner, and the magnificent Sybil Bedford. Talk about wonderful dead ladies, Sybil Bedford. 
she's great. Though briefly reunited with her second husband, so her third marriage was to her second husband, who she married twice, uh, in Beverly Hills in 1961, um, that union soon fell apart too, ending when Campbell took a possibly accidental overdose of sleeping pills just two years later. Her first husband had also overdosed at that point. A friend who rushed the Parker side asked if he, she could bring her anything, to which a stricken Dorothy is said to have replied, a new husband. Her own life ended rather unceremoniously with a heart attack on June 7th, 1967 when she was 73 and living uh, with a French poodle she had called Cliché <laughs> uh, at a New York hotel for ladies of a certain age. Her friend and literary executor, Lillian Hellman, organized the funeral. Dorothy wore a dress picked out by her friend Gloria Vanderbilt, who couldn't make it because she'd just given birth to Anderson Cooper. Dorothy Parker was cremated, her ashes languishing in a lawyer's filing cabinet for two decades. Her papers lost forever. She left a lifetime of barbs, both correctly and incorrectly attributed, and her estate she left to Martin Luther King. When Martin Luther King was killed just one year later, it passed on to her second choice, the NAACP. Her ashes were finally interred outside their Baltimore headquarters in 1988, and her copyright still lies with them, so I really should have emailed them. Maybe remind me next time. Um, if you'd like to know more about Parker, um, these are the two books to get. Uh, the Portable Dorothy Parker is out in a lot of different editions, secondhand, but get this one because it's really good. Um, and this biography is also the best of the three that I've read. Before I leave you, I'd like to play you one clip of a radio interview that she did in February 1959, uh, which was the same month that Buddy Holly and Richie Valens crashed, um, the same month that Swiss men overwhelmingly voted against women's right to vote. They would get it in, any ideas? 71. Um, it was also the month when the United States Weather Bureau released a report that concluded that the world was in the midst of a long-term warming trend. Um, Dorothy. I want to say thank you <laughs> for listening, and you're very kind. And I'm not scared now. That's fine at the end, I'm not scared. <laughs> well, not being scared anymore that you want to add a sort of postscript. I think things are going to get better. Before they get worse. Or despite that. I, well, they're pretty low now. <laughs> no, I think they're going to get better and in all branches, not just in writing, don't you? In, in human relationships. Yes. Well, I hope you're right. I, I feel perhaps you are. Well, if you, if you can't feel that way, I don't know what you do. And we'll just uh, live and hope and, and work together, I suppose. That's, that's the best we can that's do. That's it. Thank you very much. Florian Dausens on Dorothy Parker, recorded at the LCB with bells on. By the way, the biography uh, Florian recommends is... By Marion Mead. It's called Dorothy Parker, What Fresh Hell Is This? Very good. Thanks to Katie and Florian, and we'll be back with another episode in January. Until then, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and online at deadladyshow.com. Drop us a line and tell us who your favorite dead lady is and what you think of the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susan Stone.
think Katie needs a top up. I do. <laughs> Thank go. you. I was I wasn't gonna say anything, but okay, like, yeah. okay, okay. Lovely. It's Christmas, I guess. <laughs> Cheers. 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 To dead ladies. Dead ladies, yes. <laughs>